Welcome back, everybody. It is episode 27 of Jointly Venturing Let's Talk World Citizenship. It's the middle of July 2020, and viewed from any perspective, whether a subjective one or most definitely an objective one, uh, the world is going through a tremendously tumultuous time with coronavirus expanding its reach at uncontrollable levels, it seems, with climate change more out of control than it's ever been, with more despotic and authoritarian leaders running more countries than perhaps we've ever seen, Um, and at the same time, little glimmers of hope that real change can come are occurring simultaneously. Uh, The Black Lives Matter movement has spread globally and has begun political processes in all sorts of ways in all sorts of different countries, um, beginning as it did in, uh, well, in its most recent rendition in Minneapolis with the murder of George Floyd. And popular movements are springing up across the world. New organizations are being formed. Um... Some elections are going in a direction which are actually life-affirming and pro-people rather than the opposite. So there are signs both of, of hope and despair, as there always are. At the same time, it would be difficult to say that this is the most positive period that the human race has gone through in recent centuries because, in actual fact, we are really at a dangerous juncture. We've had relative peace for 75 years. Reminder to everyone that this is the 75th anniversary of the United Nations, an organization which has done extraordinary things, perhaps not lived up to its potential. Most certainly it hasn't. And the reason it hasn't lived up to its potential in my mind, despite all the incredibly positive things that it's done, has to do with the simple fact that the entire organization is comprised ultimately of nation states. And yes, international civil servants who work for the UN can go some ways to pushing for a vision similar to what we have at Oneness World, a world of world citizens, a truly uh, cosmopolitan global society in which all are equal and in which all participate in increasingly powerful democratic decision-making. But at the same time, the UN... And indeed, all international structures are inhibited by the simple fact that they tend to be comprised by and controlled by um, nation states, the very essence of which are to represent their own interests above all others. And if if their own interests happen to coincide with the interests of other states, that's fine. But in the world of creeping nationalism and creeping authoritarianism, Clearly, decisions are going to increasingly be made along national nation-state lines, pushing the world further away, in fact, from the objective of a world of world citizens. So what does it mean to be a world citizen? That's what we're going to talk about today and try to bring a little bit of clarity to this question. Um, What does the life of a world citizen look like? What does it actually mean to be a world citizen? All of us need to have a nationality now. 
all of us need by the very nature of our political system to have a nationality, a citizenship, which is usually portrayed in physical form in the form of our passports in order to exist in this world. Um, there is no such thing officially and legally as a world citizen now. Um, we are all distinguished from one another on the basis of our nationality or our nationalities. This is not to say that those things are becoming more fluid as, as time develops, but let's remember that the whole concept of passports is barely a century old. This is not something that's been with the human race forever, uh, very far from it. Um, this is a new phenomenon, the idea of needing official recognition in order to cross borders and move into other places. So for the vast majority of the human experience, um, borders were limited, permission to cross borders was limited. Um, people did live, even if in a relatively naive state, they did live in a, in a world of commonality, despite all of the differences that may have accrued, particularly in the form of power imbalances. So what we want to talk about today is what, what could the world be like? How much better could the world be than it is today? And would the, the idea of everyone having the same citizenship assist in that process? And why is it so difficult to imagine a world where all of us humans, whether we're from Africa or Russia or Brazil or Tunisia or Canada or anywhere, um, what makes it so difficult for us to accept that all of us are actually the same, which everyone at their core knows to be true, and yet we somehow cannot find it within ourselves to organize ourselves in a manner that recognizes this incredibly fundamental and basic fact. And my view most certainly is that unless we do this and do this in short order, the chances of our species surviving and thriving in a prosperous, peaceful, environmentally sustainable manner for centuries and centuries to come is increasingly unlikely. So bearing in mind all of the negative developments that are occurring in the world today, COVID-19, climate change, etc., um, why can't we use this tumultuous time as the springboard to something far, far, far better? and begin exploring what those things might look like. Because at its core, being a world citizen, as esoteric as that may sound, essentially means that one cares about the welfare of other humans wherever they may be. And nationalities are no hindrance to this. Citizenships are no hindrance to this. Physical location or geographical location on the globe is no hindrance to this. No matter where humans suffer, no matter where humans suffer in particular at the hands of others who are more powerful than, than them, matters to world citizens. And as much as it matters to us what is going on with humans everywhere else, we also hope that growing numbers of people begin to embrace that view. And with that view comes a greater understanding something the integral movement calls world-centric consciousness, which allows us simply to see the world as one entity as it is. We are still probably very far from reaching this objective globally, but I continue to believe that there's more and more people that hold these views 
and that we may just get there yet. And today we are going to speak with somebody who I most definitely consider very much of a world citizen, somebody who's worked their entire working life on behalf of people who are oppressed, subject to human rights violations and land theft and all sorts of other heinous deeds. And that is human rights lawyer, human rights advocate, uh, Graham Russell, who's speaking to us today from the lovely streets of Toronto, Canada. So, Graham, welcome to Jointly Venturing. Um, hi, Scott. Uh, thank you very much for having me on the program. Um, and thank you for that, that introduction, sort of setting the stage for what we'll be delving into. I look forward to this. It's great to have you here. So I'll start with the easiest question of all. Would you call yourself a world citizen? Uh, fundamentally, yes. I mean, without putting too fine a legal definition on the word citizen at this point in time, um, I've long sort of been um, uh, particular to the notion or had a, a deep understanding of the notion that we are just one people on this planet and we live amongst a myriad uh, of life forms on the land, in the air, in the water. And so we're one people living amongst a myriad of life forms on one planet. And, and this, is, this planet is our home. And do you remember the, the first time that you started having that feeling that we actually were one people? Because this is most certainly something that's not taught to most school children in the world, and it's not something that's necessarily imparted by our parents or our religious leaders or our political leaders. So do you remember any moments early in life when you started thinking in those terms that not everybody was a Canadian, but everybody was a human? There's a, there is a key moment, but it's a key moment that was followed up with uh, sort of some transformational studies to, to try and get my head around these things. So it, um, I was born in 60, so I spent my first 20 years, I'm simplifying things, having a very nice life in, in Canada and um, solid, solid home, very safe, secure home, good parents, um, got to participate in a lot of sports. Uh, activities outside of school. My parents were never in, in need of money. Basically, we lived a very comfortable, privileged life in a in a country like Canada that provides uh, an awful lot of sort of uh, social services for its population. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't so. I won't. I'll leave it at that. But in my early twenties, late late teens, early twenties, I started traveling to to Mexico, and I had a particularly transformative experience. As I was there learning um, Spanish, taking Spanish immersion courses, I was probably 21 or so, um, I just started to get to know Mexico City and then basically one day walking, just making a long story short, but walking to um, my, my immersion course at the La UNAM, the University, National University of Mexico, mm -hmm. I just came across these vast slums by the, the famous Estadio Azteca, the Aztec Stadium. Mm -hmm. in Mexico City. Mm -hmm. And it really, obviously I was sort of primed for it or right for it in ways that I don't fully understand, but I, I literally, stood, literally stood there staring for, I can't, I can't remember how long, at this massive slum. And sort of my life of comfort and ease and healthy, happy activities flashed before my eyes as somehow the connections were made that these folks had their whole lives already lived 
present day and future there in that slum. And so to, right. to finish off this part of it, I, that was the jarring moment. And I'm sure I wrote a lot of diary entries about it. And I started talking with uh, people who I knew and trusted or cared about. And I changed courses at undergrad and took Latin American studies. And the long and the short of my, the reason why I came to understand uh, um, to the understanding that we're sort of one people living together on this planet is um, I came out of these, this experience in Mexico and then the studies I took for a year or so done with uh, some very progressive uh, critical thinking Latin American uh, scholars, etc. is that I didn't, is that I understood that the problems of the global South are absolutely linked to the problems of the global North. I, whatever education I'd gotten when I grew up, how I'm just this happy-go-lucky in Canada, sort of fell by the wayside when I started to understand the deep historical and ongoing interconnections of uh, the global economy and the accumulation of wealth in one area, the accumulation of poverty in another area, and the accumulation of military might in one area usually at the expense of military destruction and weakness somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And I, I came right, uh, right through to the other side to realize, because I've, I've gone on to work for many years in Central America, but I came to realize that the issues that uh, Central Americans are suffering from, which are multitude, are very much Canadian and United States problems. And, um, going back uh, generations in history, right through till today and continuing into the future. I should add, um, before I let you cut in, Scott, I, over the years, became a U.S. citizen as well. So I've lived for many years in both Canada and the U.S. and uh, many years in Central America. And I say that just to say that I sort of often bounce back and forth, forth between we Canadians, we Americans, or et cetera, um, because I ended up having both passports. Right, right. So... I mean, we all know generally that, you know, Central America in particular is having a rough uh, time and generally has had a rough time for decades. Um, but now it's probably had, having a even rougher time than usual, um, given levels of social violence um, combined with, um, in well, in recent months, COVID-19, etc. And you mentioned the very important point that, you know, many, in your view, many of the problems that face Central America and by inference uh, other parts of the developing world um, are ultimately generated by the activities, the policies, the laws, the practices of more powerful countries that have uh, power over and hold sway over a number of these countries. So would you also believe that the inverse is true, that were the policies and practices and laws of those external countries more favorable towards the weaker, smaller nations, that many of the problems that seemingly are intractable in these countries could in fact be addressed and this, the situation on the ground could change fundamentally for the better. Well, I think logically, yes, um, because it's sort of a theoretical question. I, I don't see it happening in the present or the near future in any substantial way. And, and I don't want to cast too broad a brushstroke when, I, when I'm critical of wealthy, powerful countries, because obviously they're not the only actors in the world. But if my, in my work, if my 
It's a problem that um, folks in Central America um, have been confronting are, are substantially linked to military and economic policies uh, of the United States and Canada to a lesser extent. Then that, those are the two countries that I tend to focus on. And I might just throw in for the sake of this discussion and my understanding, the rough times in Central America, um, my understanding is very clear that they, there's sort of a 500 year narrative in place mm-hmm. and that the, the suffering, the ongoing suffering today and by suffering, what am I referring to? Endemic exploitation and poverty or extreme poverty, uh, endemic racism, uh, endemic violence by the private sector and or repression by the public sector, the governments and the states, uh, endemic corruption and impunity. There's a fundamental lack of democracy, and that's almost by design. So that's a bit of an overview or a mouthful, but that, those are when I refer to the problems that beset uh, significant numbers of Central Americans, I'm referring to those types of issues. Mm-hmm. And the roots of it clearly go back through the, the hundreds of years of European imperialism and colonialism. And it wasn't until the 1800s, without putting too precise a date on it, it wasn't until the 1800s that the United States became the big elephant in the room in terms of things like exploitation, uh, repression and violence and uh, dispossession in Central America. And Canada as a as another sort of offshoot of European imperialism that ended up um, as sort of a neo-colonialist country itself, our policies are very much been gone hand in hand with U.S. policy in general terms. Mm-hmm. And so I take the, 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 the beginning of this really complicated and intertwined story back that far. Um, and I, I, I really do want to emphasize um, and pick up on your sort of emphasis about the nation state system itself. Mm-hmm. This, the issues that we're talking about and certainly that I've been dealing with have very much to do with the, the, the dysfunction and the inherent profound inequalities built into the nation state system itself. And much of the nation-state system on the planet today, and certainly in the Americas, is a direct result of colonialism and imperialism. That's all, that's all it came from. It didn't come from any other processes. Any previous nations living here were destroyed or ripped apart or ripped asunder, the First Nations, the indigenous peoples. And so um, alongside of a nation-state system analysis, one clearly has to include sort of a class, wealth, poverty analysis, uh, a gender an analysis and a race analysis. All of these things have been, have been and continue to be deeply intertwined. Um, but we need to talk a lot more about the inherent inequalities and uh, injustices built right into the nation state system itself. And I really appreciate this radio program and your focus for that. Well, let's think about a couple of the or several of the Central American countries now and try to see, you know, what we can figure out. Now, people that know Central America even a little bit know that um, Costa Rica tends to stand out as the the safest country, the one with least violence, the country without an army, um, the one that seems far more stable than many of its neighbors. Um, so what do we attribute this to? And to what do we attribute 
the very high levels of violence right now in, for instance, Honduras and El Salvador in particular? The, um, again, I'll give to, I've always understood, I lived in Costa Rica, actually, Costa Rica for um, three and a half years in the early 90s. Um, mm-hmm. I was doing my Central American regional human rights work out of Costa Rica. So my work then with something called the Central American Human Rights Commission, CODIUCA, was based in Costa Rica, San Jose. Mm-hmm. Was, com- was, um, was comprised of Central American refugees, mainly from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, um, fleeing fundamental to, to simplify things a bit, fleeing U.S.-backed military exploitative regimes in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Coduco is also comprised of a number of Nicaraguans, um, Costa Ricans, and Panamanians. Mm-hmm. But certainly then, and probably true still today, unfortunately, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, this, the so-called Northern Triangle, have long been the most devastated and hard hit. It wasn't always this way, but it certainly continues to be that way today. And I, um, and so I, that's where I sort of got delved deeply, started delving deeply into um, the Central American work um, directly. And learning about this, the question of Costa Rica always came up. And so the two understandings I have of it is that one understanding predates um, the, the creation of the nation state system itself. And that for particular reasons, there was a, uh, a smaller percentage of indigenous people living on the lands of what now are called Costa Rica. Costa Rica was carved out of indigenous lands through the processes of, of European imperialism and, and driven nationalism and the setting up of the nation states. Mm-hmm. And that, that factor becomes important because uh, whatever societies that grew up in this place called Costa Rica were not built on just outright overt enslavement of or exploitation of indigenous people. There was far fewer to begin with there in the first place. That's a bit of a simplistic answer. It's not the only answer, but I've heard that uh, assessed many times. And, and you contrast that with a country like Guatemala that remains today the heart and center of the, the Mayan world. And the processes of colonialism and imperialism decimated millions of lives of uh, what are of Mayan people and who are now known as Guatemalans. Because again, Guatemala was an imposed nation state system. Mm-hmm. But the other factor comes as to why Costa Rica is so different, it's much more recent and very specific to the United States and Central American politics. And by the 1900s, the United States was by far and away the big actor across the Americas in, in economic and military power and wealth. Um, and if that's true for the Americas as a whole, it's particularly true in Central America. And in the late 40s, the U.S. was still, two things were happening. They were still coming out of World, the so-called World War II, <laughs> European imperialism war number two. And the United States was coming out as a victor in many ways, plus its economy um, sort of benefited in many ways from World War II, unlike the economies of um, Europe that were so devastated. And the United States and, and Canada directly, by extension, were getting a massive sort of uh, booster effect uh, economically coming out of World War II. But the Cold War hadn't begun yet, and this is there's no fine date on this. But there, McCarthyism hadn't taken across taken over the U.S. in the late 40s, 
early until the early fifties, even though the signs of it were there. Why do right. I focus on that? Because in 1948, Costa Rica had a very small but important civil war. And it was fought between a centrist sector, in today's loosely defined centrist political sector, and a left-wing sector, not a right-wing sector. Mm-hmm. And they came to blows, and approximately 1,000 people were killed in the fighting. The U.S. did not get involved. And this, for me, is the entire story. The U.S. let it play itself out. They came to a solution themselves. They brought, they, they, came, they brought a truce. They stopped the fighting. They came to a political agreement. And the centrists dominated, but with concessions to the left. And concessions like abolishing the army. Concessions like establishing sort of a, a FDR good deal, public education system, public health system. Which, so the abolition of the army, plus the establishment of the public health and education systems in Costa Rica are as fundamental to their development since that time going forward as anything else. Mm-hmm. Now contrast that with Guatemala. Um, when Guatemala at this very same time had the only democratic government in their history, the, the government fundamentally of Arbenz. Mm-hmm. It's called the Guatemalan Spring from 1944 to 1954. But two things were very different in Guatemala. One is, is that the majority of the population were Mayan. And secondly, the biggest landowner in Guatemala was the United Fruit Company. Right. The United Fruit Company owned most of the best lands all through Central America, including Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. But it played itself out differently in um, Guatemala. And so the government of Arbenz was bringing about very serious reforms in Guatemala, quite similar to the Costa Rican ones. This is sort of a key thing. The Arbenz government was a capitalist government. It wasn't privatizing and nationalizing lands. Um, it was setting up public education system, giving the vote to indigenous people and the women, setting, trying to set up a public ed, uh, education system along the health system. And, and then here's the trouble begins. They went for some serious land reform. But the land reform was a very clearly stated law that it was only to be unused land that could be expropriated from large landowners over a certain size. Mm-hmm. So two things happened. First off, they come, they bought right up against United Fruit Company. That was the biggest landowner by far in Costa Rica, let alone Honduras and other countries. Secondly, they had massive amounts of unused land and they just didn't pay any attention to the new law. So the government of Arbenz tried to expropriate their lands and was in, in the process of doing it. But thirdly, the Cold War had begun. McCarthyism had taken over, this is a simplification, taken over of the ideological airwaves in the United States, the witch hunt was on, the blacklist, etc. And the United States was seeing communists around the world. And they labeled the government of Arbenz a communist government, which was ridiculous on every single possible way imaginable. And they sponsored a coup. And the coup in 1954, led, by, led and paid for by the United States, um, has, has set the stage for the last 70 years of just atrocious violence, exploitation, racism, and dispossession that continues in many ways today in Guatemala. Right. So sorry to be so long-winded, but that is my understanding of how Costa Rica got an out. And then meanwhile, in all these other countries that were trying to fight for the same things, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua in a different way, Guatemala, every time there was just the smallest social movement starting to gain, you know, substantial political power, the U.S. just labeled a communist, jumped in and supported the, the military and the, 
the local economic elites, and it's an easy formula. And violence uh, would run the day, run the day. Yeah, and once violence so, starts, and once violence is seen as a as an effective, you know, political tool, um, it's pretty rare that it ceases to be used by those that are exercising it. And you know, let's just remind listeners too. You mentioned the United Fruit Company, which you know a lot of people probably have never even heard of. Um, but the role that they played, and obviously, it's a United States based company. Um, the role that they played throughout Central America in pushing for, you know, extremely repressive regimes um, to run these countries in the interests of maximizing profit um, cannot be neglected in any sort of analysis. And remember, too, you know, the overarching picture, do, let, let us not forget those two um, very influential uh um, I don't even know what you would call them, but uh, perspective, let's say, from the U.S. government, um, manifest destiny combined with the Monroe Doctrine, which essentially said that yeah. this is our sphere of influence. You know, And the irony, of course, is that what you were describing, uh, for instance, from 44 to 54 in Guatemala, what the Arbenz government was attempting to do, sounds very much like what any government would do in the United States. Um uh, at that time, and not, not particularly yep. radical at all. And let us, too, remember, before you get into the next phase of your discussion, the the amount of times that the United States physically, militarily invaded countries in this region, not just in Central America, but in the Caribbean as well, is very extensive. I mean, there was Panama in 1989. There was the mining of the harbors in Nicaragua in 1983. There was, of course, the coup that you just mentioned in 1954 in Guatemala. There were several invasions of the Dominican Republic, where, incidentally, both of us have worked together on a number of occasions in the past. Um, there, were the, where, there was, of course, the unsuccessful invasion of Cuba um, with the Bay of Pigs uh, 60 years ago or so. Um, there was the invasion of Grenada and the overthrow of the government in 1983. I'm just doing this off the top of my head, and there's probably yeah. a whole bunch that I'm missing. Um, so the, there was this yeah. the continuous pattern of violent U.S. military yeah. intervention, contrary to all forms of international law, contrary to the entire yeah. basis of, of the international legal, legal rules-based order. And that combined with the role of oligarchs, uh, multinational corporations, and authoritarian regimes in these countries um, in collusion with um, the more powerful northern neighbors has uh, you know, played itself out in incredibly negative ways for ordinary people in, in these countries. And if we include Mexico in the mix now, of course, um, as great as a country as it is, um, and we all love Mexico, uh, but you know the war, the drug war there now, I believe, has surpassed two hundred thousand killings. You know, I mean, it's it's astronomical. Um, running, uh, you know, the, the drug market, which basically is purchased by the northern powerful neighbors of the United you know, citizens in the United yeah. States and Canada. And if there wasn't a market for it, it just wouldn't be happening. So let's, you know, weave that into the equation as well. You have the drug war, you have, you know, now you have COVID-19, you have this history of, of violent inter intervention and, and oppression. And, and the very interesting, unique example that you mentioned of 
of why Costa Rica has kind of lucked out and what, what important lessons yeah. that has for the rest of the world, that if you take a, a socially, uh, even moderate socially oriented policy approach and focus on the basics like schools and healthcare and limited land reform and things of that nature, and also the radical step of, of, of abolishing the army, um, the end result is a lot better than uh, than the alternative. Yeah. Just a little. <laughs> you know? It's so, um, let me just bounce off um, three or four points here and then let you push us forward. But um, to bounce off your, your concluding point, like it, when you look at Costa Rica today and realize that's how easy in many ways it could have been in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and Nicaragua. Nicaragua's played itself out differently. If it had just been allowed to develop democratically in the same directions um, that Costa Rica was going, and as you said, they were pretty much implementing social welfare policies that uh, Canada and the United States in the, in the Western Hemisphere started to implement in the 30s. The U.S. did it coming out of the Depression with FDR's policies in Canada, set up our public health system in the 30s. They were doing nothing more than copying some of the the, uh, the government-funded, right. government-supported health education initiatives. And so it is depressing to realize this uh, Central America could and should look so much different, but for the role of uh, the United States, um, Canada, and then their repressive economic elites and military partners in the region. But let me bounce off a few things. One is, you mentioned Manifest Destiny, Monroe Doctrine. So that is all from the early 80s, 1800. Mm-hmm. And so uh, thank you for mentioning that. And anyone who wants to understand the history in the region, uh, you have to start there with well, that it, ideology. Remember, it's still very much alive in the minds of U.S. policymakers. Well, no I'm going to get to that. <laughs> and that's, uh, um, so pick up that theme. A second thing, just to clarify, when I mentioned the United Fruit Company and you're right. Very few people have heard of it. Most people have heard in North America anyway, but probably in Europe uh, have heard of standard fruit, Chiquita bananas and Dole bananas, mm-hmm. which are the three children of United Fruit Company. When it broke up as a monopoly, the, the standard fruit, Chiquita banana and Dole banana grew out of it. So that it's one line. That's the same history of U.S. banana barons from United Fruit Company to standard Chiquita and Dole. It's one, one, one consistent history that spreads out over hundreds of years. And you got on to how they, the banana empire is basically propped up, governments put up, governments put governments into power, etc. The, the expression banana republic, which is a very denigrating expression, was coined from Honduras. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't re- it, it, that, that grotesque and sort of really denigrating expression would be applied by the wealthy elites to a number of countries. But banana, Honduras was the original quote-unquote banana republic. Right. Um, and then to, to, to finish off this part, and then I'll see where you want to push it ahead. The, um, the, you throw in the drug war, and the drug war is, is only new in its brutality. It just makes everything worse. It makes the corruption worse, the impunity worse, the landlessness worse, the violence worse, and even the racism worse. It, the drug war is not the underlying problem in the region. It just takes advantage of everything we're talking about benefits from it and makes it worse. Yeah. And today, as you and I speak, the countries that are most devastated by it um, are Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras. These are the, the massive shipment routes 
to get the, the drugs from the Andes to the United States. And the levels of corruption, uh, infiltration of organized crime into state, judiciary, military, and police is extraordinary in all three countries. And there's no end in sight. And then the last point I finish off, uh, one of the best documentaries, books I've seen written, or well-written book about this entire theme we're talking about is Harvest of Empires. And there's a movie that's been made called Harvest of Empire. And it's basically saying, where do all these forced migrants come from? There's a huge quote-unquote crisis in the U.S. now at the Mexico-U.S. border mm-hmm. with hundreds of thousands of, of people fleeing. Uh, and the majority, um, disproportionate majority, come from Honduras and Guatemala, as well as Mexico traditionally. So they come from other countries as well. And there, while there's some discussion and debate about the hard conditions um, trying to get across Mexico, then there's a very serious debate about what to do with them, whether criminalize them and call them invaders or treat them with humanitarian care and treat them legally and let them follow due process. There's almost no discussion about what are the underlying conditions that they're fleeing from in places like Honduras and Guatemala, and what do our policies historically and ongoing today have to do with it? I think in very real terms, United States particularly, but also Canada, um, are implementing refugee-producing policies in Central America with our military interventions, our political propping up of very unjust, exploitative regimes, and the, the endless pursuit of our own economic interests. We are creating, helping create in partnership with the elites in those countries. We are creating the very conditions that force people into to flee um, into exile and, and join the hundreds of thousands of people fleeing north, tens of thousands, year after year, decade after decade. And then turning around and, and sending them right back into it. <laughs> exactly. Right. And still, while we're still propping up the regimes for our own economic interests, there's a very closed cycle or circle at play here. There's no opening in this cycle of violence and despair and, and north-south complicity in terms of the Central American region. There's no end in sight in the near future. Canada and the U.S., for all of our different policies, perhaps inside our borders, are steadfast, staunchly, in full support of profoundly undemocratic, exploitative governments because they benefit us economically and uh, in deep denial about it. So even as we have conflicting policies as what to do with the forced migrants, everything from ship them home as illegal criminals or treat them somewhat hum- humanitarily, we are helping re- reproduce the very conditions today um, that they're forced to flee from. Is it true that uh, Honduras and El Salvador didn't really have a very extensive gang culture until uh, the... Honduran and El Salvadorian U.S.-based gang members began being sent back to their home countries. And now these countries have a huge gang problem. Is that a correct statement? I've seen that a few places. Yes. Yeah, I I do think, I mean, the whole phenomenon of gang violence is a very complex one. And whenever it's dealt within the mainstream media, to put it that way, I think they they deal with it mainly simplistically. But even... Leaving aside that, we'll get into it if you want, but the roots of it is very much when um, in the 70s and 80s, 
hundreds of thousands, oh, millions of Central Americans were fleeing as internally displaced people or refugees, and they were fleeing in all directions. And it was all because of U.S.-backed uh, military regimes in Honduras, El Salvador, and, and Guatemala. And at the same time, the U.S. was feverishly and illegally and violently trying to overthrow the government uh, of Nicaragua um, with uh, this paramilitary group, a terrorist group called the Contras. And so Central American, hundreds of thousands were killed, atrocities, massacres, rape as a tool of violence, blah, blah, blah. All the rest. Many who follow Central America have heard these stories. Millions were displaced from their homes and, and communities, and hundreds of thousands fled, if not millions, as, as refugees or just whatever you want to call them, forced migrants to the U.S. and settled in the U.S. and lived in extremely poor conditions. And it was easier to get into the U.S. in those years than it is now, um, even when it was very difficult to get in then. And then, uh, but the wars go on and um, they're rejected by mainstream U.S. society. Many of them don't have papers or documentation and they're living in, in conditions of racism and poverty in the U.S. And the gang violence, the gangs started there. And even then, gangs are a very complex phenomenon because they exist in, in, in social conditions. They only crop up and exist in social conditions or for the most part, unless it's organized crime that's directed from the top down. Gang violence grows out of poverty, dispossession. Many people who went to the gangs originally were orphans from U.S. Uh, uh, funded repression, right. um, children of massacre violence, etc. And so they, they form their own families. And this has been quite extensively written about, not as a justification for, um, for trying to forgive crime, but just understanding that these youth, many of whom spoke little English, were getting no English, et cetera. And then the U.S. began to deport them massively in the 80s and in the early 90s and deporting them as criminals when we'd, we'd forced them to flee and settle in the U.S. in the first place. And they go back to countries that are now even more war-torn, more destroyed by U.S.-led wars, and more dominated by um, minority wealthy elites. And they pick up um, the... the Gang violence um, continues and grows from there. With fewer and fewer options. Because they were born in the U.S. Right. No options. I mean, in certain regions of Central America now, like in Mexico, youth sort of grow up with two options in life. Uh, there's three options. One, try and get an education, go to the city and get a job, but you'll never get it, let alone you'll never get the education. Option two is get involved in narco-trafficking. Option three is work on your, your parents' tiny plot of... <laughs> Uh, arid land that has no access to water, which is not an option. And right. option four is go to the U.S. Um, right. Try and get into the U.S. and work and, and earn money. Those are life options. And so in big cities, gangs are an option in life, one of the few options. It's a brutal option. It's an option with basically no fundamental range of choice on the table before you. But the gangs are, 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 are like a, born in a cauldron of exploitation, racism, dispossession, poverty, and repression and corruption. And then they become very serious criminals. I'm not uh, understating how violent gangs are. And then just to push it a bit further, gangs become very, very, very complex things, and it's been well document, documented in, in Central America that certain gangs start becoming 
convicted of contract killers and contract violence people for the state and or organized crime. And so that makes a bad situation worse because the state is allegedly fighting to put an end to gang violence. And at the same time, sectors of the state are hiring gangs and using gangs to, to carry out their own corrupt, violent activities, and which often overlaps with organized crime, whether it's drug trafficking crime or other, uh, other forms of organized crime. Absolutely hiring gangs or joining with gangs they become the muscle on the streets. They become the, the sicarios, the hired killers. So the gang phenomena is super complex, and, and it, it's a product of all the injustices and inequalities and then makes them all worse at the same time. Well, and sometimes they even play the role of the state themselves uh, in the absence of the state. Well, they actually are now in the case of coronavirus. Coronavirus, as many people have said, this is sort of, um, the latest virus that's added on the top of the viruses of uh, endemic and historic exploitation and poverty, the viruses of state repression and private sector violence, the, the viruses of dispossession, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So coronavirus comes into all this and makes everything worse. The states, particularly in Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador, unfortunately, are doing little to nothing useful whatsoever to support their majority populations. Um, in, in response to coronavirus. And to pick up on your point, there's already documented cases that gangs in certain neighborhoods are the ones that are keeping uh, the rates of the, the spread of coronavirus limited in their neighborhoods, in their sort of areas of influence. And they're doing it as nicely as they can, and they will use extreme violence if uh, <laughs> someone doesn't obey them. But there's actually been concrete results of stopping the spread of coronavirus even in very brutal conditions. It's a complex phenomenon. I mean, it is just so daunting to when you put it all together and just, you know, imagine it yeah. through the lens of two human eyes looking out of a, out of a head in one of those areas and, and, you know, pondering what the opportunities are for that person in such a setting. And you see that, yeah. you know, virtually every pathway is a dead end, really. Um, it's fundamentally different than so many other parts of the world where there are, you know, if you work hard enough and you're lucky enough to get a good education and so on and so forth, um, and you live in a you know, stable area, you can move ahead in life and, and life can be, you know, a very pleasant experience. But in places like this, the structural obstacles put in the way of ordinary people to live that full, peaceful, prosperous life are just so gargantuan that overcoming them is virtually impossible. And that's not just the case in Central America. I mean, it's the case in, in many countries. If, you, if you're brought up in a very poor neighborhood, in the United States, for instance, you know, the chances of you actually getting out of that neighborhood for life are the latest figures I saw was something in the range of 3%. You know, if you're in one of the very poorest neighborhoods um, surrounded by crime and poverty and, and deprivation throughout your entire youth, you have a minuscule one in 30 chance of actually getting out of that neighborhood and living a more uh, prosperous life. So this is a real structural yep. problem that exists um, globally, but let's try to think of something positive um, about um, Central America. Cause we yeah. all know, I mean, you have hundreds and hundreds of beautiful Central American friends as do I, I mean, they're some of the nicest people on the planet 
Um, they love dancing and they love eating and they are so generous and so gregarious and so funny. You know, there's so many great attributes um, to that whole region from Mexico all the way down to Colombia, um, you know, as well as the Caribbean too. So, you know, imagine what that region could be. I remember in the, in the 1980s, there were these beautiful, um, there was this art, art movement in Central America, you know, where these sort of utopian uh, images of, were painted by these painters of, of these lush fields and these peaceful little areas with all sorts of, you know, beautiful cultural attributes. And you really saw, like, this is what Central America could be, you know, small farms, um, everybody's basic needs met, a local medical center looking after people, um, very little to no violence, and so on and so forth. And, you know, so what are the prospects of that, you know, really – how can we how can we move forward in a positive way and push for policies yeah. in Central America that would actually you know affect the poor majority and really turn those countries into what they could so easily be right the um I think uh, i've I've put all my emphasis um, in my work as sort of a Canadian and American as I said um, living and working in Central America. Um, we directly support community defense struggles, and we um, these are communities that have been in the past or ongoing today have been harmed and devastated by global mining companies, uh, World Bank funded hydroelectric dams, uh, the for export the production of African palm, sugar cane, um, corn, um, pineapples, bananas, coffee, and then you get over into the sweatshop, the maquiladore industry. And then you get into the whole phenomenon of tourism in the Caribbean basin area, particularly in Honduras, and sort of the violence and corruption used by global tourism operators to get indigenous people off their lands so that they can control and own the, the coast <laughs> and be the owners of very profitable tourism industries that cater to North American and European sort of tourist consumers. Um, so we do the work I've been doing since um, the late. Uh, early 90s is about directly funding and supporting these communities that are resisting all of these harms that are backed up by violence by the state, by violence by the private sector. But the, the second half of the work has always been to hold Canada and the United States accountable for our public sector and private sector policies that directly contribute to, benefit from, and worsen all of these problems. So I, I present this now as sort of where I see one avenue of real hope, if not long-term struggle. Mm -hmm. in, a place, in regions like Central America, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that if we do not achieve holding the, the international community, to call it something, accountable for how it directly contributes to and benefits from all the ills in Central America, then there's no way that uh, the Salvadoran people themselves, the Guatemalan people themselves, the Hondurans, etc., can hold their own governments accountable. The, the correlation of power and force is too great because when they are fighting for serious political, social, legal, human rights change in their own country, they're not just fighting against their own corrupt government and economic elites. They're, they're fighting against their own corrupt government and economic elites that are fully backed and empowered by their relations with Canada and the United States, by their relations with the United States military, by their investments they get from the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank, by the support funds they get from the IMF, 
by relationships with multitudes of global companies and investors. And mm-hmm. the, so to, to take on that array of power, you have to deal with it not only on the ground in Honduras and Guatemala, where I most work now, but in Toronto, where most of the mining companies are headquartered, in Washington, where the U.S. military establishment is based. And that remains a fundamentally deep, huge challenge. And many North Americans are working on this going back decades to hold ourselves accountable for how we contribute to the very problems that the people of Honduras uh, and Guatemala are suffering from, for example. But so, and that, I see great hope in that, if not an understanding that it's a necessarily long-term struggle. But at the grassroots level, it's unbelievable. The, the, the spirit and energy and courage of people across Honduras and Guatemala. And so this is, becomes the other part of my answer, um, is that there's never a lack of grassroots community-based movements across the planet now that are increasingly understanding that these are local to global issues by definition. They're not just Guatemalan problems or Honduran problems or Congolese problems. They're everyone involved in these issues is increasingly understanding that they're local to national to global issues by definition. And the, the struggles for change and accountability must be fought at all levels together. Mm-hmm. So we have the great privilege of supporting dozens of amazing indigenous and non-indigenous communities fighting for these very things at the local and national levels against very corrupt governments. But then there's hope to take it to another level. There's hope in certain governments in Latin America. And Costa Rica is, a, is an extraordinary example in many ways. But in terms of governments that fought for and, and fought against, literally had to fight against U.S. imperialism from crushing them, the, the stories that have played themselves out in Cuba for 70 years is still a story that's never been honestly told in the international community or the mainstream anyway, how extraordinary the achievements of Cuba are. In Central America itself, the Nicaraguan Revolution was a spectacularly successful revolution in many ways, um, given what the, the weight of what they were fighting against, even though there are very serious complications in Nicaragua today, not all was crushed when the United States really tried to roll back their revolutionary government in Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. The, the government that was recently ousted in Bolivia, the government of Evo Morales, mm-hmm. and it was ousted by a coup led by the racist economic and military elites in Cuba, in Bolivia, but fully backed by the United States and Canada and international mining companies, or indirectly by mining companies. The, 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 the achievements of the, the, the government of Evo Morales over the last 13 years in Bolivia were extraordinary. And um, they can't be undone. That, that's what's going on right now, as you know, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays itself out, if not sad and depressing. But the achievements of, of Morales' government cannot be undone. But do they have enough strength inside the country and out to roll back the illegitimate uh, temporary government and elect back into power um, you know, a, a democratically representative government? Similar things can be said about Venezuela. The government of Venezuela for 20 years, with all of its complications, with all of its internal strife, they implemented very serious and successful uh, policy reforms in the areas of health, access to credit, access to land and education, um, plus um, democratizing the vote, uh, spreading the, the vote throughout the country. That struggle is in play as we speak right now, as anyone who follows international news is, and they're being, Venezuela's being demonized in, in the US and Canadian media, um, 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that story has to play itself out. But I stand by the argument that the, 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 the achievements in Venezuela can't be turned back. Uh, they empower, they have empowered and uh, enabled a significant percentage of their formerly sort of ostracized or oppressed or dispossessed populations to now become active, educated, capable um, participants in their own society because they're not so devastated by poverty, corruption, and repression of the past. So what would you that say? It, forward. What would you say then to you know to skeptics that uh, would point to the millions of people that have fled Venezuela into neighboring countries, Colombia, etc. Well, in recent I years, think, right? I, I, One of the biggest refugee flows in the world is from Venezuela outwards now. Well, I would encourage you to invite onto your show or some interview people who have a very different perspective on the numbers. No one in Venezuela that's supportive of the government um, and critical of U.S. imperialism and the efforts to to basically overthrow the government. And Canada's a full participant in these illegal efforts to overthrow that government. Mm -hmm. It's just atrocious. No one disputes that there's a crisis in Venezuela and that people are fleeing. Where the numbers get really disputed um, is there's a pretty deep misunderstanding of the extraordinarily high numbers of uh, Colombians and Venezuelans that have traditionally um, crossed each other's borders um, for work, migrancy, etc. And the, the numbers of Colombians that fled and went and lived with no, no obst obstacles whatsoever, no real no government legal obstacles during the worst years of uh, uh, the violence in Colombia mm -hmm. and then into Peru. And then they set up communities and they start working and they build an economy. The, the flow of populations back and forth across these borders is a historical thing and it's often for seasonal labor. And uh, without uh, pretending that there's not an issue in Venezuela, um, I, I utterly dispute the numbers that have been bandied about in the United Nations and the international media. And, there's a lot of people who have looked into it in depth and come up with very different numbers. None of them sort of, uh, sort of overlook the complicated nature of the issue. But unfortunately, I think the international media and even international organizations like the United Nations have really misinterpreted and misexplained uh, the, the refugee forced migrancy crisis in Venezuela. And it, it's only serving the political interests of the sort of the elites that are trying to overthrow the government there and their backers in the United States and Canada. Well, you have this extremely unusual situation of, of the, what is it, 60 countries or more recognizing the opposition leader as the legitimate head of state right now? Juan Guaido? Well, this will take us down almost a, sort of a rabbit hole of, of in a different direction. Um, but the... The story of Guaido is um, is worse than a B-rate Hollywood movie. Like, it is so atrocious that there's even any credibility given to this, this so-called government in exile or uh, interim president. Mm -hmm. And to a lesser extent, the same thing's true in Bolivia now. The, 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 Guaido doesn't have an ounce of credibility or claim to being president in, in Venezuela at all. Um, the elected government of Venezuela is Maduro. We just happen to hate him. And I think if you want to know the underlying reason, it has to do with oil and gas and mineral interests. End of story. I don't want to be too simplistic, but that's the end of the story. 
And the U.S. is intervening in Venezuela, leading the intervention in Venezuela for exactly the same reasons that the U.S. has intervened in countries, and you named a lot of them. But going back to the, the beginning of the Monroe Doctrine um, in the early 1800s and Manifest Destiny. So, I mean, US, Venezuela, uh, is, Venezuela is the biggest, has the, the world's biggest oil reserves, I believe. Absolutely. And, and the United States is driving that ship. And oil and gas next to mining is one of the biggest industrial sectors and financial sectors in Canada. And Canada is openly supporting the U.S. efforts to delegitimize and try and overthrow that government. So is the, and it, I think, is the objective to take over the oil fields as they attempted to do in Iraq? Or are they afraid of... No, get in, get in, get in place a government that would be very much like the government of, that they have in place in Honduras now, or Guatemala, or Haiti, or the government they're trying to install in, in Bolivia. They want governments in place that represent... Uh, this. This is, this is slightly simplistic, but not much, Scott. Mm -hmm. They want governments in place that have a vision of development that um, is dominated by the economic elites in the country with their international corporate and investor partners. End of story. And so they will, um, the government of Hugo Chavez in the early and mid-2000s started changing um, how they do business with international corporations and, and investment firms. Not unlike some of the policies that, policies that were implemented in Cuba. And Cuba deals with multinational companies now in Cuba on a regular basis, including some mining giants from Canada. But they change the rules, they change the laws, and then the companies can accept it or not. And so there was a whole exodus of Canadian mining companies and oil and gas companies from Venezuela over the years because they were changing the policies and, and demanding sort of 51% ownership in businesses or mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. whole series of demands that are fundamentally an anathema to the global of corporate and, and in, in investment industries, and I, I think it's as, I, do, I think it's as simple as that. Has Venezuela been a perfect country inside its borders? No. Has it been the perfect democracy? No. Has it implemented fundamentally empowering social and educational and health and labor reforms? Absolutely, yes. They get don't get discussed at all. Uh, so it's a very complicated story, but I think. Um, the, the whole phenomenon of re recognizing so-called President Guaido is, is an embarrassment to the global community and uh, the international community. And it's being driven by the United States, certain countries in Europe, and Canada's going along for the ride. And then they, when you look at the list of the other countries that are supporting this, well, it's Honduras, it's Haiti, <laughs> it's Guatemala, mm -hmm. it's Brazil, it's uh, right. Colombia, it's Chile. Like, extremely right-wing, pro-global business governments. And um, so the issues play themselves out that way, and these are the battles that are going on in Latin America. But let me just encapsulate that. I'll go on about Venezuela if you want, but my point um, is that where one sees hope, in my view, to summarize, is I see hope in the increasingly critical awareness of people in the global north that these are our problems, mm -hmm. environmental issues, poverty, militarism, etc., and that we are the beneficiaries of, and we dominate much of this stuff. That's a bit of a generalization. Second area of hope is grassroots movements all the time. And they prop, and, and they become the biggest targets of repression for all the wrong reasons, mm -hmm. but they will never stop organizing and, and to defend their lives, their, their environment, their lands, their water sources. And they are at the forefront of trying to transform how we live together in the world. 
And then the third area of hope, even though they become complicated political strategies, struggles, is when governments try and break the mold um, and become, in, in the eyes of Canada and the United States, they become the danger of a good example. Cuba, we hate Cuba because it's the danger of a good example. We hated Nicaragua in the 80s. It was the danger of a good example. Bolivia and Venezuela, ongoing struggles right now. They're a danger, the danger of a good example because they're starting to transform how the development economic model works and they're putting an end to global corporate uh, investor control over um, the global economy. And that should happen everywhere on the planet. Um, and But this is why... Um, the, the wealthy, powerful nations so often gang up to try and roll it back and, and bring in favorable governments. Right, right. And, you know, I guess, the I mean, of the many, many, many lessons, uh, the key one, of course, is, you know, intervene to reduce the power of multinational corporations at your peril because they will fight yeah. back. They will fight back with a vengeance, Right. And that's playing well, itself and, and out. To build all over on that, in, intervene and try and weaken the power of the United States government and military at your peril as well. Those those two statements, yours and mine, go parallel and go together. Right. So, um, just to remind listeners, um, we're speaking with Graham Russell, who runs an organization called Rights Action. You can find it on the internet, rightsaction.org. Um, they support yep. grassroots projects in Honduras and Guatemala, largely in rural areas, who are struggling to protect the rights of campesinos and others uh, in those countries and more broadly. And we're speaking about the the challenges facing the people of Central America and South America generally um, in a world where far too many governments are not moving in a democratic direction, shall we say. So Graham, just maybe we say a few final words about this whole concept that the podcast started with today, which is is world citizenship. I mean, you, you're not from Central America. Uh, you go there often, at least in the pre-COVID time, um, you went there often, and you work directly with people in those countries. Um, I do very much the same as well uh, all around the world. And I think, you know, of the many, many perspectives that we share, um, obviously one is that we are indeed one human race that is far too fractured and, and far too, you know, bifurcated um, to lead to the direction that we would both like it to go, I believe, which is a, a much more unified world in which everybody everywhere had the same rights and the same uh, opportunities as people everywhere else. And certainly from my perspective, unless we move increasingly in that direction, uh, the chances of our species surviving and thriving into the 22nd century or 23rd or 24th centuries are, are really becoming increasingly limited. I mean, we are the first generation, really, first or second, that has had at our fingertips all cumulative human knowledge um, in the form of the internet. Um, we know that every single square meter of planet Earth has been explored now. There are no more mysteries. We know what we have. We know what world global oil supplies are. We know how much solar radiation in a positive way reaches Earth every day from the sun. 
We know how deep the oceans are. We know where everything is. We know as much as we need to know in order to really create a global society that has true sustainability at its at its base. And that obviously includes the protection and promotion of human rights. So how do we weave in the whole notion of world citizenship to the people of Central America and particularly or rather in addition to citizens of countries such as the United States and Canada yeah. who have a real direct responsibility in altering the yeah. policies of those countries so that it can actually benefit their fellow humans down in yeah. the equatorial regions. Well, I'll pick up on um, sort of one of the things that I've long been focusing on in our educational activism work, and that is to redefine the issues as that they're not Guatemalan problems per se or Honduran problems, but they're our problems. They're our problems through historical processes of colonialism and imperialism. They're our problems through the, the, the incredible influence and power of the United States, both economically, politically, and militarily over the last 200 years. And they're our problem as Canadians, as sort of a, a wealthy nation that is sort of joined at the hip to the United States. And so they're our problems economically. Where do our bananas come from? Where do our our, our sweatshop clothing come from? Where do our shoes come from? Where do where does oil and gas come from? Like the people in Central America, and I'm sure this is true across many parts of the world, they're very aware <laughs> that they live in a global community dating back hundreds of years because they've suffered imperialism and colonialism and interventions and in multinational companies. They're very aware of the power and wealth of, that is sort of weighing on, that is sort of the boot on their necks. Mm -hmm. uh, in their countries. The ones that are less aware are sort of the beneficiaries of this uh, very unjust and unequal system. And the beneficiaries, beneficiaries are the elites inside these countries, but particularly in the rich, wealthy countries of the global north. And again, that's a bit of a simplification. So that's part of the solution is to push away at making the connections and, define, and redefining these as they should be defined as our global human problems. Secondly, I think, and this gets a bit airy-fairy in many discussions, but I don't think it's airy-fairy at all. We, as part of that, and, and this is what people are struggling for at the grassroots level and community defense struggles all over the place. They, they believe strongly in, in ideologies, ideologies and value systems uh, of equality, of mm -hmm. collectiveness and, and equality, mm -hmm. not inequality. We live in world value systems and then, therefore, military systems, legal systems, economic systems of inequality. R rhetoric aside about the equality of all people and the equality of all nations, you just look at how the global community works, and it's it's a it's a nation state system of profound inequality of power and wealth between nation states, and that's designed to be that way. And you look inside many countries, not all, and there's just profound inequality, and that it's designed to be that way. So part of the this, this, this struggle is to re-educate the global north and the beneficiaries of so much inequality and injustice, but also pushing forward through all that to um, ideologies and value systems and then systems of equality of wealth and power. And then you throw in on top of that a discussion about how we have to live more rationally and peacefully and less harmfully on the planet as a whole. Like we need to take on the ideology 
ideology of more. Like the entire right. global capitalist economic system is premised on more, more everything, more consumers, more consumption, more production, more waste, more profits, more investment, more. Right. It's, it's been described by many economists as, as sort of um, the, you know, it's a self-destroying ideal system based on the self-destroying ideology of more. Right. So along with all right. the other challenges of a real equality of wealth and power, we have to then live simpler. This is not a story about going back to wagons in the middle of the, the forest or the desert. It's just we have to live simpler and within an imbalance with Mother Nature and imbalance with all life forms to keep us a healthy living planet for future generations. We also need to, you know, get to the point where we truly once and for all address uncontrollable greed. And yep. what is it about the human mind um, that makes it so difficult for the privileged to accept that they have enough and to simply say, I don't want any more. And that is, I think, a topic for another evening, but it's something that we really need to think about. Why is it that, first of all, why is it that we allow the emergence of a billionaire class? Why do our political systems yeah. enable and, and allow that and support it? Why yeah. do the billionaires themselves and the multi-gazillionaires and multi-millionaires and others, the, the, the 1% of the planet, yeah. um, why, doesn't, why don't they realize that, that there's so much more to life than continual amassment of more and more riches? And there comes a point where personal joy, personal pleasure, even hedonistic desires and everything else associated with that constant massing of wealth um, will yep. plateau and they will die and they will realize that on their deathbed that maybe there were so many other things they could have focused on rather than that. And it's still such yeah. a challenge, such a huge challenge for... Um, the billionaire class in particular, but the, the millionaire class as well, to really stand back and say, what is my role as a human being on this planet yeah. right now? There's 7.8 billion of us. How, I mean, yeah. can I really sleep easily at night knowing that I have so much more than 99.99% of humanity? Yeah. You know? And, and, and you know, I can be do. a philanthropist if I want. I can give some money away, etc. But... I mean, there's some really great books that have come out recently showing what a, a you know ridiculous premise that is because the overwhelming majority give away the most minute proportion of their overall yeah. wealth. Um, and we don't want to rely on philanthropists for social justice. We we should rely on governments and democratically selected um, you know uh, parliamentary bodies to yep. make those decisions, not wealthy. Um, individuals and and I think there's that's so much also at the core of the problems that face Central America and elsewhere in the world. This this whole um, you know really the the holding up as as great and holy um, the acquisition of wealth and power above all other objectives and it goes yep. hand in hand with the celebrity culture that is so prevalent um, in the world today and it is part of the problem. It is not part of the solution and and we really need to weave that analysis into any overall understanding of why 
we are at the juncture that we're at. I mean, it's so obvious <laughs> that we live on a finite planet. I mean, it's just yeah. beyond ridiculous how obvious it is. And and yet we continue to pursue this idea, as you were mentioning, of more, the ideology of, of more yeah. and never-ending acquisition um, you know, and, and simply not looking at where true happiness comes from, where true contentment comes from. And, you know, hate to tell you billionaires, it ain't from having the world's biggest bank account. You know, there's a lot of other pathways that can be pursued and in their relentless pursuit for more, um, they're creating global structures that lead to, you know, the biggest imbalance of economic power relations that the world has ever seen with a yeah. handful yeah. of billionaires having net worth equivalent to more than half of humanity. I mean, it's just staggering. So there's it's lots to do. Disgusting, but yeah, there's lots to do. And I look forward to those future podcasts when you take those, uh, address uh, the whole ideology and systems of more, ever more. Absolutely. We'll do that. And, and I think um, um, we'll dedicate today's podcast to uh, all of the people of Central America, but one organization that I had a small, teeny little role with years ago, um, Copin, who you still oh, support, my. I believe. Do you still support Copin? They're still working along? Well, say, I'll, I'll finish off on talking a bit about Copin, and, uh, but I do remember how you and I, well, you initiated some uh, yeah, they won, contacts uh, that I worked with you on. They won one of the uh, I worked, for, uh, you know, as an advisor to the the Body Shop Human Rights Awards program. Yeah, and um, yeah, they received one of those awards back in the well. I think 90s. The, the the part you're you're forgetting right there, Scott, is that you then sort of contacted me to write the um, the, sub, the submissions from Central America, and so because um, Body Shop was looking for submissions from all the different regions of the world and you contacted me and I, I, I made the submission for Copine. Right, 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 um, right. I, this was all you're doing and then you got in touch with me. And so, um, but let me pick up on Copine just a tiny bit because of the, the, the assassination of, of Berta Caceres. Right. Um, we started working with Copine in late nineties and, this body shop award that you helped um, facilitate was in the early 2000s. And by then I already knew Copine's work very well. Um, had been working with them closely for four years and fortunate for Copine and, and to the body shop's credit, uh, they picked an extraordinary winner and those funds were very important to the building and growing of Copine. Today, Copine through the years of Copine was co-founded by Berta Caceres and her then partner, Salvador Zuniga. Mm -hmm. um, actually in the home of, and was founded in the home of Berta's mom, Mama Berta, as everyone knows her, um, who's still there today. These are all the folks I got to know uh, as great friends over many years as we were supporting Copine's struggles and work in the Honduras and visionary struggles and work. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if I've been discussing early on in our discussion today, sort of the 500 year perspective on history, I learned that as much from Eduardo Galeano as I did from Berta Cáceres. Um, this is the vision of people struggling for grassroots fundamental change across the Americas is the 500-year perspective. And that was Salvador's and um, Berta's, and it's certainly the vision of Copin today. 
And then the, the, the sad um, sort of explanation mark on all this is that over the years, many Copine members were assassinated. And in 2016, mm. the most well-known <laughs> Copine member, at this time the, the leader of Copine and, and general coordinator, Berta Cáceres, was assassinated for all the reasons um, that you and I are talking about today. She was assassinated because she was one of the most articulate, passionate, and vocal voices against um, the Honduran regime that came to power in a U.S.-backed, U.S. and Canadian-backed military coup in 2009. There had been an ongoing resistance struggle to the unjust government. And across the country, she was the most vocal and articulate critic about the, 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 the global community-dominated economic model. And she was involved in very serious uh, indigenous rights land struggles, supporting them throughout the Americas, but particularly in Western Honduras. So she was assassinated by the, Hon- the U.S. and Canadian-backed regime that's still in power today in Honduras, together with interests of the one of the wealthiest families in uh, Honduras that was trying to force a privatized uh, mega dam project onto indigenous territory in western Honduras with extensive um, <laughs> international funding from, uh, at a given point, the World Bank, but then also uh, um, development banks in Finland and, and, and Europe. Uh, and so her assassination sort of is... Um, is at the heart and center of everything that you and I have been talking about um, today. So I would certainly dedicate uh, my work and then sort of a presentation I would give about these issues to, to Berta. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was one of uh, just a truly great tragedy that happened. And it was just four years ago now. And one of one and her story, you know, uh, at least got some media attention, you know, at least, Somebody heard about this tragic event, which has unfortunately been carried out against thousands upon thousands of people um, in that in that region and in and in regions across the world. And Mm -hmm. um, because impunity reigns, you know, in many of these countries and all of these beautiful human rights laws and human rights protections that are very often included in the very constitutions of the countries where these crimes occur um, are simply not worth the paper they're written on. And, uh, yeah. you know, we have a long ways to go. So, in you know, in, in Berta's memory, let's hope that the future is ever brighter for the people of Honduras and the people of the region as a whole. And, and before we go, let's also remember a great man that we both had privilege, really great privileges to work with um, and even appear on television with. And that was that great human rights hero, um, Victor Cuffey from St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Uh, What a great human being that guy was. And he probably passed away now 15 or 20 years ago. Um, But I will always remember our little adventures running around St. Vincent and the Grenadines um, seeing sides of that country, which uh, the vast majority of people who go there don't see, because uh, if anyone right. goes there from the West, it tends to be yachties who, tr- who cruise around the beautiful islands there. But we were working with a, yep. a human rights ad- advocate. And um, yeah, I'll never forget our appearance on uh, his TV show, Vinci Rights, which was uh, always uh, 
always started with uh, a little snippet of a Bob Marley tune. Please dig up the, 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 a copy from the archives for me. I do have a video of that, but I don't think I have a video machine anymore to play it on. Um, but, um, yeah, so we remember well, I'll, I'll follow him up with you on that. very, very fondly and his wife, Enos. And, um, and that's another story for another day. But maybe one day in the future we can also do another episode of Jointly Venturing on our joint work together in, uh, in the slums of Santo Domingo in uh, the Dominican Republic, because that was another great part of life that I think back fondly on very often. Well, Scott, I'd love to pick it up with you again, and I'm just appreciative of you pushing ahead with these uh, regular podcasts, delving into these issues from this vision of sort of world citizenship or one people, one world. Uh, I'm very much a a fan of this and, and in support of this in all my work. Well, that's great. And, you know, if there were other options available to us humans um, that I thought would bring about uh, the world we know all is possible, the much better world we know is possible, um, I would certainly advocate for that. But I, at this point in time, certainly can see no better option than building structures and building human awareness globally that we're all in it together. And if COVID-19 doesn't convince us of that fact, um, maybe aliens will. Um because uh, that's that's what I hear well, so risk, often, uh, you know. Yeah, go ahead. Well, with the risk of this will take us on for another couple hours. Um, for me, the, the the meat of the matter, or the heart of the matter, in terms of uh, global citizenship or understanding that we, uh, we are one people on this planet, is local control, community based, lo- community centered collective-centered, local control, local ownership, local accountability, local processes, local economy. The two, for me, go hand in hand. Right, right. Um, and, um, and that's and the, the paradox. And that that's, also slowly that... takes care of the ideology of more. When right. we understand that we're all equal, that this is our one living space, then the best way to live together is to live responsibly, collectively at the local level and um, based on profound sort of understanding of living in harmony with mother earth and all, and all life forms. Um, and these, there's so many examples of this across the planet right now, even as the old order, the order of more, the ideology of more, more wealth power, more military power, more everything is in the competition is an open competition right now. There's just competing visions and understandings going on. And, uh, I'm thankful for the work that I've been able to um, come to know in Central America. Absolutely. And you're way over on this side of that equation. And remember, the you know, one of the great ironies is the more that one wants more, the less free one is. So if freedom is your objective, Mr. More People, um, start wishing for more and then you'll become truly free. The more you constantly <laughs> wish for more, the less free you are, the more bound you are, and the less joyful you'll probably be as well. So with that, and on that note, thank you so much, Graham, from Rights Action in Toronto today for this amazing discussion about the, the trials and tribulations of the people of Central America, South America, and beyond. And at the same time, for the glimmers of hope that we have that by understanding the nature of these problems and, and their sources, that we can finally begin to start putting together the components of 
the vision of a oneness world, a locally based economy that sees the world essentially as one and takes that into account in everything that we do. Um, the old adage of thinking globally and acting locally remains as true as ever. But I think our possibilities of understanding uh, the global nature of things have also never been higher. Um, we you know, have been able to travel extensively. More and more people have seen and met people from elsewhere in the world. And, and at their core, the vast majority of those interactions are extremely pleasant and, and pleasurable because most people, most places, most of the time are extremely pleasant and extremely nice. So let's focus on that positive side. Let's imagine, you know, the time has come in 2020 during all of this tumultuous time to let's really imagine what the world could be compared to what it is. And let's put the pieces in place to make that happen. We have everything at our fingertips globally to have a far better planet than we actually have. So let's do that together. And in doing that, Agreed. in a unified way, we can really, really make a difference everywhere. So with that, thank you so much, Agreed. Graham. Have a great... Thank you very much, Scott. We'll be in touch. Have a great evening, and we'll see you soon with episode 28 at Jointly Venturing. Take care. See you, everybody. Bye now. Bye now.